This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Distributed by Inside HPC. Chips heat up in Silicon Valley. A big week for processor news. It's This Week in HPC. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in to This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. And This Week in HPC is distributed in partnership with our friends at Inside HPC. Michael, as you said in the tagline, it was a big week for processor news, starting with the fact that you were at Hot Chips this week. Yeah, I went to the uh, the sessions on Monday, which detailed a lot of the, uh, the HPC news. I missed the Tuesday sessions, but uh, it was very interesting. Day there it was a long day, but a lot of news was crammed into in, into Monday. Um, hot chips actually, like we were talking about last week, not a lot of the news was from Intel or Nvidia, right? Yeah, in the HPC uh, sessions, those three sessions there, all of the news basically was around sort of these custom-built chips for HPC, two from the Japanese vendors, Fujitsu and, and NEC, and then the one uh, Anton chip from DE Shaw, uh, the specialized chip for molecular dynamics simulations. So, yeah, not, not really mainstream stuff in the sense of, uh, you know, you'd see them anywhere. I mean, the the... The NEC chip and the Fujitsu chip, you'll, they'll be deployed in supercomputers, obviously in Japan, and then some in, in Europe as well. But uh, no real general-purpose x86 and, and GPU server-type chips being detailed at this year's conference. Well, we talked about the Fujitsu Spark chip in last week's episode of This Week in HPC. Do you want to tell us about either of the others? Yeah, the the interesting one, and, and this is this was public as well, the SX ACE chip from uh, NEC this is basically the follow-on to their SX9 chip from uh, a few years ago. Um, very interesting chip. They went sort of in a different direction here. The, the chip itself is not a whole lot more powerful than the previous version. It's just they've they've uh, re-architected it to make it much more power efficient. In fact, it's like 10 times more power efficient than the previous version, which is which is a big jump. And uh, the the infrastructure is about five times as dense. So this is a it's a four-core vector processor like all the SX chips, but um, it's 256 gigaflops per CPU and, of course, 64-bit uh, double precision. Um, just a lot more powerful per watt than the previous version. So they, they intend to sell that into the same customer base they've been selling into before that uses these big vector machines to do uh, some traditional high-performance computing in Japan and, and also in, in Europe. We haven't seen a lot of ongoing vector business, though. This must just be legacy for NEC, unless you think that this can work its way into Japan's exascale initiatives. Well, we might see we might see some of this into the exascale initiative. I mean, it's a very powerful chip. And you remember originally in, in their petascale initiative, NEC was one of the prime vendors there. They dropped out late because of uh, financial reasons, but certainly they're being looked upon to provide some of the exascale technology. We'll see whether that pans out. Um, well, that's actually exactly my concern, is last time the Japanese government spread it around to Fujitsu, Hitachi, and NEC, and Hitachi and, and NEC both dropped out, leaving Fujitsu holding on to it all, and then Fujitsu eventually delivered uh, ahead of schedule on everything. So the question would be, what, what role would Hitachi and, and NEC play this time around? Yeah, Hitachi, I'm not sure about. I mean, NEC still has the vector computer chip in, in the industry. In fact, it's really the only one left that does a custom chip like this. The original idea was to pair a vector 
uh, infrastructure with a, with a set of scalar uh, computers and get that sort of heterogeneous, heterogeneous uh, computing for supercomputing. But in this case, we just saw what uh, Fujitsu was doing with their chip. They basically integrated the the vector processing made it powerful enough into the their new Spark 11 FX chip, so it remains to be seen whether they'll pair these two together for any exascaling issues. But it was a very impressive chip, and like I said, it's it's the only one in the business, and uh, I think it, it will retain its legacy of uh, of those customers and maybe expand a little bit. I mean, it's pushing a little bit in Europe, and, and there's there's certain customers there that might be interested in this, but it, it's not going to bust open the doors, and all of a sudden everybody's going to be using custom uh, vector supercomputers to do the, the main work and, uh, around the world these days. Well, to your point, that uh, Fujitsu Spark 11FX that we talked about last week, that, that will take them at least to 100 petaflops, as we said. It hasn't been announced whether that itself would be a platform to go to an exaflop. They might decide if there's going to be some pocket of that machine eventually by the end of the decade that still has vector components. NEC could be in there. Right. I doubt you see Hitachi for any part of that bid, except possibly on the data side. Hitachi Data Systems could do something. Uh, high performance, particularly after their acquisition of Blue Arc, if they keep any of that technology going. But uh, really, it seems like Fujitsu carries the, the bulk of that going forward. NEC could get a vector component. But tell me about this other chip from D.E. Shaw, this Anton. We haven't heard a whole lot from them. No, they, they, the original Anton chip, uh, which was premiered several, several years ago, which is Custom built basically for molecular dynamics modeling and basically to do uh, sort of life sciences applications, drug discovery, uh, molecular models of, of uh, bioactive uh, molecules for. for for the medical field, basically. So it was custom-built for this particular application. So they were able to to do a lot of stuff and, and get a lot of performance for, you know, sort of a very narrow code base. And what they announced or what they talked about at uh, the Hot Chips conference was their second-generation version called just Anton 2, of course. And they're getting like 10 times the, the throughput and and. and they're able to do a lot more atomic simulations on this chip than they were before. So it's just basically the second generation, but it's something that, again, is not going to be widespread, even much less widespread right. than the chips, the two chips we just talked about. Um, you know, I'd, I'd be surprised if we saw more than, uh, you know, single-digit systems in its in its lifetime. But very interesting work, and there's been some very interesting work on the Anton One chips that that have been there for some of these uh, molecular uh, dynamics applications. Well, it reminds me, in a way, of FPGAs in that you know you can tailor a chip to a particular application doing a little more work. Now, with the Anton chips and DE Shaw, what they're doing is, of course, hard coding it right. for particular application sets. So it's not exactly like an FPGA, but it winds up being like that, in my mind, in terms of deployment, because we're going to customize something for a particular application set. And yeah, that's a growth area of the market. I don't see it going away. There's no reason why they can't continue to be successful with another generation of chip here. Yeah, it's just <clears throat> with the the model they're using, I mean, specialized software as well, it's just not going to be a widely deployed uh, <clears throat> solution for, for everybody, but certainly I think some interesting cutting-edge research can be done there and to sort of show the way forward for, for more commodity systems maybe, um, but it's a very interesting technology and 
it was a it was an interesting session to see how they sort of balanced the different uh, parts of what they needed to do. And in fact, <clears throat> some of it they were able to to ignore some of the some of the issues that you know commodity chips have to have to deal with, like power consumption and things like that. I mean, it's it's not something that you know certain things like density and and, and power usage were were applicable to this application set or to this uh, uh, or the way they were building these things. So they had some leeway on on to do certain things very differently than you know just general purpose CPUs and GPUs. You know, one thing that crosses my mind with some of these corner case chips is I, you know, traditionally I would have thought of hot chips as a place to come out and really showcase maximum performance, really high uh, high power stuff. I mean, it's called hot chips. It's right in the name. But, you know, really cool chips are what's, what's in, right? There's so much emphasis on mobile and low power. Did you get a lot around ARM and that kind of thing at hot chips? Yeah. In fact, there was a whole a session group on ARM. There were three uh, three different sessions, two of which do pertain to HPC. They, they weren't labeled in the HPC session section, but uh, certainly some of these are to have application there as well. We they, they talked about AMD talked about its its Seattle 64-bit ARM architecture that they're they're starting to uh, sample now and release soon. Um, we've already talked about that in past podcasts, I think, but they just detailed a little bit more about it and what they're going to do. Um, the, the more interesting one, in my estimation, was Applied Micro. They've they've talked about their X gene chip. They we saw it at uh, at ISC this past summer uh, in a couple of systems, and now they're talking about their X gene two, their second generation chip, uh, which will be even more interesting. They're actually going to integrate uh, uh, RDMA over converged Ethernet into that chip to go after low latency applications, something that not everybody's doing. So that one's even more applicable to HPC. In fact, they're targeting it as sort of an application uh, set. Uh, that chip sampling now and, and it's going to come out within a year or so. So um, that might get some interest from some OEMs that are looking uh, to take advantage of the ARM technology. You know, one interesting thing, you mentioned that we were talking about AMD previously, and we covered the, the new GPU, the S9150, in last week's podcast. We actually had a an email back from Simon McIntosh-Smith in the U.K. saying that he's done a lot of work testing this and other GPUs, and he was uh, kicking in some of his additional thoughts around these chips. Yeah, I mean, from his experience, it seemed like he was he was very high on the AMD technology. They, he was getting some Similar performance than the latest from uh, NVIDIA, and uh, they're using, in, in his research group, they're using OpenCL as the programming model since uh, they're, they're sort of loath to use sort of this proprietary CUDA, uh, which, which isn't applicable across all platforms. So um, from, from what he said, he's getting very good performance out of the, the AMD chips, and it's comparable in a lot of benchmarks and application stats, and he's, he's satisfied with the way OpenCL is 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 coming together. Um, in the past, there's been a lot of criticism that it wasn't uh, functional enough for a, a lot of applications, server-side applications, especially in HPC. But uh, I've, I've heard this before, that that's starting to change, and there's more functionality and, and maturity in that set now. And uh, from his experience, that that's coming together. 
Yeah, it was really very positive uh, review of AMD from Simon's standpoint to to say that uh, you know first of all we had hypothesized these chips leapfrog each other and that AMD's lead might be short lived and he he states quote neither Nvidia nor Intel will have anything as fast as the S9150 for at least 12 to 18 months. Now you can uh, uh, you can agree or disagree with that, but there's use this is a user on the ground who's saying he's very pleased with the performance of the S9150. Then we were also discussed the software strategy, uh, and he was chiming in, agreeing with us that this open standard and not having to, to have everything on proprietary CUDA was exactly what he was looking for as a developer. A, v a very strong review for AMD from the user community. Yeah, that was. Um, as far as leapfrogging, uh, I think we will see some very powerful chips coming from NVIDIA and, and, and Intel by the end of the year. They might not be generally available the way customers think about it, but they'll be in systems and they'll be showing applications they'll be running. Um, I think they will leapfrog this, not by much. I mean, we're all talking about now like three three teraflops per chip, and I think they'll all be in that general range. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, what what the other ecosystem parts around that will be as far as attracting vendors. Um, I, I will say this. Nobody at Hot Chips this year, at least, talked about uh, their latest and greatest accelerators. We didn't see anything from either NVIDIA, AMD about their, their very latest chip, or, or even uh, Intel about uh, the upcoming night's landing. No, nothing on Knight's Landing, Intel, Xeon, Phi. You think we're going to get more there at supercomputing? I, th I think we will. I think that's what they're waiting to announce. But in, in the past, it's, it's often customary to announce some of at least new technology or some of the new feeds and speeds at Hot Chips. This is a very well-established uh, uh, conference. It's been around since 1989, and, and a lot of a lot of companies do use this as, as a as a mechanism to get the latest news out there, but maybe they're holding their cars a little closer to the vest now, especially in the accelerator market where all of a sudden the competition's heating up a lot more, so maybe they just didn't want to sort of let let some of this information out before they uh, they were ready. So, yeah, interesting point that uh, not a lot of new accelerator or GPU news, but building on what we had last week, very uh, appreciative to Simon McIntosh-Smith of the University of Bristol in the U.K. For, for his views. We always like hearing from our listeners. If you have a comment on any of the news that we bring up in the course of the week, do send us an email to thisweekinhpc at intersect360.com. Michael and I love to hear from you. But, Michael, it wasn't all hot chips uh, news that came out. Did you catch any other press releases that didn't have to do with hot chips specifically? Well, IBM had a, had a big announcement about their first uh, neurosynaptic computer chip. That actually came out last Friday, just as we were doing last week's podcast, so we sort of missed it. But uh, it did get some coverage, and it's certainly a very interesting story. They've, they've had this program. Cognitive computing here we're hearing more about from IBM, right? They're putting neural networks onto a chip. Yeah, exactly. They've had this, uh, this project going for a while now. They've got some money. From uh, they had some money from DARPA uh, for several years. They're they're doing it in collaboration with Cornell Tech and and another small company. And they finally built this this chip, and it, it's out at least being field field tested right now. It's, a, it's called the Neurosynaptic Computer Chip. It's from their Synapse program. Um, 
and it used the neural network model for computing. So uh, the past few years, IBM's put a lot of effort into making a, a software stack for this thing so people can use it. But basically, it's a it's a chip used to do more of um, more of what we're accustomed to as 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 thinking type program to do sort of pr pattern recognition to do uh, you know signal acquisition and 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 making decisions on a, on a higher level than you know, sort of this brute force von Neumann architecture gives us. Yeah, I mean this is something we've heard discussions about at various conferences in the past. Where if if you just compare the brain as a computer to you know computer chips, the chips are all faster or have lower latency. Our brain is a relatively high latency device, and yet it it trumps computers at a wide range of tasks, including the recognition or, or processing types of tasks that you're looking at. So there's a question of can we build more of a neural network type of chip to be good at these kinds of things that humans still excel at. Right, and that's the idea behind this. Basically, they've built something with, uh, they used five and five and a half billion transistors, a little less than that, to build a, uh, a chip that simulates one million neurons and 256 million synapses. And they do it at a very good power consumption, just like the human brain doesn't use much power. This thing, at least just one of these chips, uses 70 milliwatts uh, during operation. So that's a very good power consumption to do uh, admittedly uh, a sort of a narrow application set, but a very important one in that uh, pattern recognition is the basis of a lot of applications now, especially with uh, all the distributed sensors we're seeing around. Uh, it could have wide application in a lot of different industries. Yeah, you just feed it a power bar or what are supposed to be good brain foods now, goji berries or something trendy like that, and they we're going to power a, a, a neural network off of that. Yeah, 70 milliwatts. I mean, you could almost uh, get that off of heat from your body. That's that's not much. And then putting these together and to make a much more powerful system is is certainly within the, the purview of what IBM is doing. So they're talking about, you know, supercomputing level uh, computation as well as as well as uh, you know, mobile and and, and cloud uh, applications. Well, Michael, thanks for the report on all the different processor news, especially from hot chips. Uh, I like getting all that processor news. Did, did we catch it all? Uh, actually, there were a few other things. I didn't actually make the Tuesday sessions. There was, there was <laughs> IBM news for the power ecosystem that they've been talking about for, for several months now, and also there was uh, some presentations from Xilinx and Altera about the latest uh, FPGA technology, not in the HPC track, but certainly just general purpose and what's being done at that in the in that technology. So a lot of interesting sessions there. I hope to go back next year and catch up everything. Uh, good stuff and uh, a good crowd of people. Very interesting. More than we can ever possibly cover in a single podcast. But as I said before, always happy to take email from our listeners at This Week in HPC at intersect360.com. But appreciate everybody listening in. Thanks for the news, Michael. Thank you. And you've been listening to This Week in HPC. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing, distributed by Inside HPC, news without noise for the high-performance computing professional. For more information, visit intersect360.com and insidehpc.com.